Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. There's great assurance in singing and praying the truth of Scripture back to the Lord, for in His Word He has revealed His will. And so when we pray in accordance with that, with the help of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, then we can certainly be confident that the Lord would be pleased to answer those requests that we make. So thank you, Julia and others, for leading us to sing and to pray. Thank you, DJ, for your ministry. Uh, DJ is one of our elder interns. Brother, you've never led a pastoral prayer before, is my understanding. And uh, I'm just so encouraged by the ways in which God is raising up faithful servants in our midst for his glory. So you've served us well this morning, brother. Thank you for your ministry and prayer and in the reading of God's word. We are grateful that you and our family, your family, are in our midst. I wish to begin this portion of our worship this morning by relaying a conversation that I had last Sunday morning. The conversation was with a man who has spent years in ministry as a pastor, as an elder here at our church, and who served with our Fellowship of Baptist Churches for many years, helping people get to the mission field. And many of you will recognize the man that I'm speaking about to uh, be be Dave Chapman. And he came to me after the service, after the conclusion to 19 months in the book of Genesis, with an extremely important comment. And it was the, now what, comment. Now what are we going to do with what we have heard? It was that conversation. And he was greatly a burden that we understand the connection between God's promise to Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham to bless all the nations through his offspring, that is Jesus Christ. He was concerned about the connection between that and the Great Commission. He wanted to make sure that we get the relationship between the foundation of Genesis and the necessity of healthy gospel-preaching churches of evangelism, of the sending of missionaries, of the going of missionaries, of the sustaining of churches, of the revitalization of churches, of the planting of churches, of the sacrificial giving by God's people for the support of such works. He wanted to make sure that we get the relationship between these two. For since God has covenanted with one man for the blessing of all nations through Jesus Christ... And since the fulfillment of this is continuing to unfold in history this very moment, and it will until the return of our Lord, we should all be asking the now what question. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for our church? One writer helps us to think through this in the following way. He says, picture in your mind a great, wise painter painting on a huge canvas with many brushes, most of them very ordinary and messy. 
The painter is God, so you cannot picture him because he's invisible. But he intends for his painting to be the visible display of his wisdom. He knows people can't see him, but he wants his wisdom to be seen and admired. His canvas is huge. It is the size of the created universe. And God is painting with thousands and thousands of colors and shades and textures. A picture as big as the universe and as old as creation and as lasting as eternity. A picture we call history. With the central drama being the, presenta- the preparation, salvation, and formation of the church of Jesus Christ. And he's using thousands of different brushes, most of them very ordinary and very small, because every minute detail is crucial in this painting to display the wisdom of the painter. The small, ordinary, messy brushes are you and me. Some of the bigger, ordinary, messy brushes are local churches like Hesper Baptist Church. And through them, God designs to reveal His glory by blessing men and women and children from every tribe and language and people and nation in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the serpent crusher, the dragon slayer, the bride rescuer. And what should interest us enormously is whether or not we are an instrument, a brush, that our master would delight to pick up and use in the painting of this canvas that displays the gospel to the praise of his glory. And this is not merely an individual interest. This is one we should share together in as a local church. So I smiled when Dave came last week and spoke with me because the next sermon series was already chosen and titled Churches That Bless the Nations. I'm deeply interested in a season of listening to God on Sunday mornings from His Word and then talking together to God on Sunday evenings in prayer about the now what. Yet before we turn to the New Testament church manual of Titus, which, Lord willing, we shall next Sunday, there's an intermediary step between Genesis and Titus that I wish to take. We've all been in that social setting, I'm sure, when the topic of conversation is going along and then someone says something that has nothing to do with anything that anyone has been talking about. And we all kind of have that awkward beat of like, where did that come from? People call this a non sequitur. What I want to do this morning is to avoid that in the pulpit, so I've chosen a text that bridges God's promise in the past to bless the nations in Genesis and the way that God is doing so in the present. Before we think through specific ways we should respond to what we've learned in Genesis and 21st century Canada, I just want to bring us forward a little bit from the Garden of Eden, and from the post-world flood of Noah, and from the desert in the Negev, and from ancient Egypt, to this moment in redemptive history. For us to be a church God uses to bless the nations We must understand the ways that God designs to do so for his glory. For us to be a brush 
for us to be brushes in the hands of our God. We must understand what is God painting and how does he design to paint it. For us to be a church that God uses to bless the nations, we must understand the ways God designs to do so for his glory. So to that end, I'm going to ask four questions drawn from the text of Ephesians 3. Turn there with me if you're not already there. Ephesians 3. And the good news about a sermon series in the New Testament is it won't take four to five minutes to read the sermon text every Sunday morning. Sometimes we'll only read a few verses. This morning it's only 13. But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. I'm going to ask four questions as we work our way through that text. So before we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we need your strength to comprehend who you are and what you're doing and of your great love and of your glory and of your eternal purposes and your manifold wisdom and your great grace. These things are too lofty for us. They're too high. We can, we can hardly contain them. And so, Lord, would you help us by your Spirit to understand what it is that you're doing in Christ to save a people for yourself, for your glory, and how it is that you're doing this so that we might submit and surrender to you and be used by you and that which matters most. So help us as we read your word again, and as it is proclaimed and as it is heard, we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 3, continuing on, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart, 
over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 13, is an interruption in Paul's train of thought. It's a most welcome one, and it is, of course, a Spirit-inspired one, but it's an interruption to his train of thought. And we can tell that from the repetition of the phrase, for this reason, in verse 1, and for this reason, in verse 14, which we didn't read. In, verses, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is about to embark on praying for these saints who are in Ephesus. And in verses 14 to 21, he does pray for the saints who are in Ephesus. But before he does, he fleshes out more of the reason for the upcoming prayer. What he writes in chapter 2 gives rise to prayer within Paul for these Gentile, that is, non-Jewish Christians but he really wants to ensure that they get why he's about to pray the way that he is. So building on the themes of salvation in Christ that join both Jew and the nations together in one spirit with access to the Father as a holy temple to the Lord, Paul continues. And what we find in these 13 verses ties together the beginning of the redemption story we explore through Genesis with what's happening this very moment in history. Having learned that God covenanted with one family for the blessing of all nations, we must now ask ourselves, what does this have to do with us? How do we participate in what God is doing in Christ to bless the nations? We know that's what he promised to do. We know he orchestrated events to bring about the promised serpent crusher. So what does it look like for us to be a church that is used by God to bless the nations? Those are the questions we'll find answers to as we work our way through Titus, and as we pray together as a congregation. But before we get there, we need to lay this foundation of understanding. For us to be a church that God uses to bless the nations, we must understand the ways he designs to do so. Which brings me to a first question, which is this. Do we understand, do you understand, that God designs to bless the nations for his glory through the gospel. At the center of the canvas that God is painting is the good news about Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his glorious return. Do we understand that God intends to bless the nations for his glory through the gospel? In the first six verses, if you look with me there, Paul writes about God entrusting him with a mystery, with a secret that was before a hidden secret but is now an open secret. You see, in Genesis, we are not told how God would bless the nations through Abraham. We are simply told that it will be so. It was a mystery. It was undisclosed. It wasn't until, as Paul writes, it was made known by revelation, as he has written briefly above, he says in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. He tells us he was given insight into the mystery of Christ, which he says was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been made known to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Apostle Peter writes that concerning this salvation, the the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In previous generations, people poured over the pages of the Old Testament. They were trying to squeeze as much information out as they could about this mystery of the Messiah. In contemporary terms, they were like the people who watch a teaser trailer for an upcoming movie or a much-anticipated series. And then they take to YouTube or Reddit, and they try to break it down scene by scene, and there's lots of predictions, and there's lots of speculation, and there's lots of hype. But they don't know what they don't know. And they won't know what they won't know until they actually have access to all of the content. That's what it was like to read the Old Testament without the New Testament. There was much more to come, but nobody could fully predict what. Paul says as much in verse 5. It just was not made known to to humanity and and other generations. Oh, there were promises revealed. There was Genesis 3.15. There was a promise that rule would never depart from Judah, as we saw. Moses said there would be a prophet raised up from among them that they should listen to. David was assured that his house and kingdom would be made sure forever before God and his throne would be established forever. Isaiah wrote of the shoot of Jesse, of the suffering servant, of a new heavens and a new earth. Jeremiah prophesied a day coming when God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Ezekiel talks about hearts of stone being removed and hearts of flesh being put in their place and that God would put his very spirit within his people. They were promises, all right, but no one could piece together how they would all come to fruition. No one could articulate how it is that all of the nations would be blessed as God would keep and fulfill his covenant. But, Paul goes on to say, this has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, what an exciting time to be alive. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to us, to which Peter writes, we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And the apostle Paul, he writes, is one of those individuals that God used to confirm this prophetic word. He says that in verse 3, that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. By God's grace, undeserving though he was, God gave Paul special access to the director's cut before it was made available to the general public. And then God hires Paul, not as a pundit to critique what was shown to him, but as a secretary as an administrator, as a table waiter to ensure that the content was distributed to everyone. And what in particular is the mystery that Paul speaks of here? The answer is in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are three things, fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through what? Through the gospel. 
In other words, the Gentiles receive the same blessings as the Jews in Christ Jesus through the good news about him. That is what we need to understand. The nations are blessed in Christ through the gospel. In three different ways, Paul expresses the same reality. He says, we as Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jewish believers. The inheritance of the Jewish people would also be the inheritance of the Gentiles. Paul writes in Galatians 3 verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's through the gospel. Secondly, Paul says, we as Gentiles are members of the same with Jewish believers. We heard it already as DJ read in Ephesians 2.15. God has made one new man in the place of two. There's no second-class members of the body of Christ. Spiritually, we have all the same genes. We have all the same father. We have all the same head. We are all united in Christ. And third, we as Gentiles are partakers of the same promise with Jewish believers. All of the promises that are yes and amen in Christ for the Jews are also yes and amen in Christ for the Gentiles. Paul writes in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What promises? The ones we just spent over a year and a half talking about from Genesis. And listen, no one saw this coming. When Peter goes to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, and he preaches the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them as it had the Jewish believers, they were flabbergasted. And then when Peter goes back to Jerusalem to tell everyone what had happened, Acts eleven eighteen tells us that they were first stunned into silence. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is the blessing for the nations in Christ through the gospel. And it's so difficult for us to grasp just how seismic a shift this was. Imagine tomorrow you open up the news and you read that Putin and Zelensky have been in a secret meeting and they've emerged as friends and they're joining their nations into one called Ukrasha. How many people are expecting that to happen tomorrow? Around these parts, we have the beginning of the NHL starting soon. Maybe it has. I don't know. I don't pay attention to hockey, especially when the Jays are going to be in the playoffs. But imagine the, <laughs> imagine the Leafs and Canadians merging into one team. Like, these are just unthinkable things. They would never happen. That's what people would have thought about Jews and Gentiles until Christ came and he died for Jew, and for Gentile, and for slave, and for free, and for black, and white, and Asian, so that through him, 
the offspring of Abraham, the nations could be blessed. And brothers and sisters, we must understand that this is through the gospel and the gospel alone that the nations are blessed. So for us to be a church that God would use to bless the nations, understanding this will ensure our commitment to prioritizing the message of the gospel above everything else. Our hope for the nations does not rest in political reform or educational reform or legal reform or social reform. So this is not where the lion's share of our efforts, of our focus, our resources, our attention should be given. Paul is emphatic here. It is through the gospel that the nations are blessed to the glory of God. So the Great Commission preaching Christ crucified, evangelizing, baptizing, discipling. This is the mission of the church. And if we get that wrong, we'll go in all sorts of directions that we were not supposed to. It is through the gospel. Now, if we understand that the message that brings blessing to the nations is the gospel... For us to be a church God uses to bless the nations, we must also understand the means God uses to spread this message. So let me ask a second question. Do we understand God designs to bless the nations for his glory through gifts of grace? Do we understand that there's nothing about ourselves that makes us worthy to be picked up and used for any of God's brushstrokes? We understand God designs to bless the nations for his glory through gifts of grace. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. Paul, writing of this gospel and the mystery of the Gentiles being blessed in Christ through the gospel, he says, of which, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There's an amusing commercial on television right now. I have no idea what it's for, which makes it a really bad commercial. But the commercial is about how it's such a waste of time trying to be the greatest of all time. Instead, the ad just encourages, aim to be a doat, not a goat. Aim to just be the decentest of all time, not the greatest of all time. Just try to be mediocre. Just put your efforts into that. It's all good. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't even have that high view of himself. His is more accurate. He calls himself not the greatest of all the saints, not even the decentest of all the saints. He calls himself the leastest of all the saints. Why? Because he held the guy's jackets that they threw, as they threw rocks at Stephen's head to kill him. That's why. Because he hunted down Christians to arrest them in what he thought was a service to God. That's why. But he was given a gift of God's grace. First, the gift of salvation. 
Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, stopping him in his hellbound tracks, blinding him for three days until the scales of the eyes of his soul fell off and he saw Christ for who he truly is. And second, he was given the gift of a ministry of telling people that the riches of Christ are so incredible that it will, all of eternity to explore them won't exhaust his riches. Do you understand that? Have you ever noticed how inherently curious human beings are? Many times we express this sinfully, as Matt Papa colorfully puts it in one of his songs, at the brothel door we're all seeking something more. But underneath the sinful ways we express this, I believe there's something entirely redeemable, something God-given, something we were created with. We binge-watch because we just want to know what happens next. That book that the author hasn't gotten around to that's the next part of the series, we're like, get a move on. I just want to know what happens next. We love to travel because we want to see something we never have before because we want to see something in more detail that we have seen before. We explore the depths of the ocean and we send stuff out into space and we do scientific discovery because there's something new to uncover. It seems we can't help ourselves. And I'm so glad God has made us this way because forever and ever and ever and ever there will be something new about Christ to discover. Some new treasure to unearth that will satisfy yet make us long for more of him at the same time. It's remarkable. You will never be bored forever because there will always be more of Christ which is an indication, if you're not a Christian, that he is the satisfaction to that longing that you cannot find anywhere else. And Paul says, this grace was given to me to tell the nations about that. To be used by God, the creator of the ends of the earth, to turn on the light for others to see Jesus when we ourselves used to walk in darkness, that is a gift that we do not deserve and one we could never earn. One pastor writes that there are two reasons Paul mentioned that he was the least of all the saints. One is because he was a hater and persecutor of the church of Christ. He never got over that God had chosen him in spite of his horrible past. The other reason is to remind you today that he can do the same for you. He goes on, here is one of the greatest incentives of all to draw you into missions. God intends to use ordinary, messy, small paintbrushes on the canvas of the history of missions because every minute stroke of his brush matters. Every bright stroke of triumph and every dark stroke of suffering matters. He is an infinitely wise painter. He knows what he is doing with your life. Not one stroke will be wasted. You can trust him. Yield to the wise hand that would paint with your life. Oh, what riches we have to give. And if we understand this, that God bestows upon 
us such gifts of grace. We will not let past sin cripple us from future use by God. Paul didn't sit on the sidelines wallowing in what he had done because he understood that God works through gifts of grace, the gift of salvation by grace alone, and the gift of being called into his service by grace alone. This is how he does it. Through grace. Now, if we understand that the message bringing blessing to the nations is the gospel and the means of the message spreading is gifts of God's grace, we also need to understand where it is people see evidence of this blessing to the nations. So let me ask thirdly, do we understand God designs to bless the nations for his glory through the church? Do we understand God designs to bless the nations for his glory through the church? Look with me now at verses 10 through 12. Paul goes on to say about the bringing of to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, important to understand in Paul's writings in the New Testament letters, this is a purpose statement, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. As the nations are blessed through the gospel, spread through the means of the gifts of God's grace, and people are gathered into the church, the glory of God's wisdom, who grants blessing to the nations, is put on display. Forget Broadway with its many theaters and its fame and its actors and its actresses. There is a greater stage showcasing a more marvelous production. Every day this terrestrial ball we call home hangs on the theater of the Milky Way on which a church is being built to display the multifaceted, multicolored, multi-resplendent wisdom of God in Christ to bring the blessings of salvation to the nations. Through the beauty of a bride adorned for her husband, God showcases the wisdom of his salvation. Through a body of many members united in the Spirit with Christ as head, God showcases the wisdom of his salvation. Through observable love among people who otherwise would have absolutely nothing in common. God showcases the wisdom of his salvation that he has promised to bless the nations with. And God does this through the church. He holds the church up as his precious possession for everyone to look at and see how brilliant he is. Which is why I get so exercised when I hear Christians attacking and belittling and undermining the church. Perhaps we'll be helped if that's our 
posture towards the church to see the particular audience that Paul points out here. The beings sitting in the seats of this cosmic theater, he says, are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What are we to make of this phrase? Well, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul praises God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In 120, he writes about God raising Christ and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In 2.6, we read of how we were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then in 6.12, Paul indicates that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The audience Paul is talking about here, then, are angels. And I would also conclude demons, that is, fallen angels. And God is showcasing to eternal angels who have dwelled with him and served him and been in his presence, he is showing them the full extent of his glorious wisdom in saving a people from all of the nations for himself. And the angels just love and long to understand these things because as someone puts it, they don't sing amazing grace of sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They were never lost. And to see the fullest expression of who God is and what God is capable of, God points the angels to the church and he says, look there and you will see my glory. Look there, and you will see my wisdom. Look there, and you will see the blessing that I have extended to the nations in my Son, Jesus Christ. And to think that God would hold up people like you and like me, and local expressions of the church such as we are at Hesper Baptist, so that the archangel Michael can take a look so that Gabriel can take a look, so that those who showed up to sing at the birth of Christ to take a look and seeing what God is doing in our lives, turn and marvel at the wisdom of God. It's rather dignifying, is it not? Undeservedly so. It's also compelling motivation to care deeply about the church, to labor for the church, to use our gifts to build up the church, to see churches sustained in health, to see churches revitalized, to see churches planted, because God's design is to showcase His wisdom and His glory and His blessing through the church. And no doubt this is to the tremendous frustration and consternation of the demons who fell with Satan in his rebellion because they're looking on as well. And no matter how much they harass, afflict, tempt, distract, discourage, divide the church, God holds her up and he protects her, and he nourishes her, and he sanctifies her, and he will make her ready for the moment when every head will turn to see the bride without spot or blemish presented to Christ, the bridegroom. 
God knows what the church will one day be, and he is working toward that end, and the angels are looking on, and the demons are looking on, and when we become all that we are meant to become in Christ, then we will all see the full extent of God's stunning wisdom. That is what is showcased through the church. Do we understand this? Do we see the priority that the church is in God's sight? This, Paul writes in verse 11, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was not an audible, it's not a plan B, it's plan A. And if it pleases God to accomplish this through the church, then surely it displeases God when we are not working in tandem with what he is doing through the church. Are there problems with the church? Of course there are. Is there sin and imperfection and need for change and growth here? Of course there is, but that's not reason to pull away. That's reason to roll up your sleeves and get stuck in because the church exists to show God's wisdom according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord As Mark Dever puts it, the local church is God's evangelism plan. The local church is God's evangelism program. And if this is true, then we best understand what churches that God uses to bless the nations look like. You see, I hope, the connection here. God's covenanting with one nation for the sake of all nations unfolds in Christ Jesus our Lord through the gospel, through gifts of grace, through the church. And the first step we can take to growing in our understanding of all of this, the first step we can take to becoming more and more a local church that God would use to bless the nations is found in verse 12. Paul writes there of Christ Jesus our Lord that it's in Him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. The throne room, the door to the throne room of heaven is wide open to us. We can walk in with our heads held up. We don't have to tiptoe. We don't have to grovel. We can enter the presence of God knowing that we have an advocate at His right hand, and we can say, Father, we need you to help us understand, truly, deeply understand that it is only through the gospel that the nations can be blessed. Your church here at Hesper Baptist needs that. Your church in Cambridge and in Waterloo Region and in Canada, we need to understand that while you help us. Knowing this gives us boldness to say, Father, we need to understand truly deeply that we can only do this by your grace. Pour out your grace upon us. We need you to. Knowing of this confidence, this access, this freedom we have to enter the presence of God, we can ask, Father, we need to understand the way that you view your church. To understand what you intend to showcase through a people that you're saving for yourself. And we also need to pray, Father, help us understand truly and deeply that you call us to die to ourselves the sacrifice, that the gospel might be proclaimed by the power of the grace of your grace for the building of your church through the preaching of the gospel to the glory of your name. So I invite you back at 6 p.m. this evening. The prayer points for our evening services will be the sermon points and text from the mornings. We need the Lord's help 
to get this. We need the Lord's help for these to be our convictions, for these to be our foundations, because without them, I would tremble at the thought of what it is that we would try to build. For us to be a church that God uses to bless the nations, we must understand that the nations are blessed through the message of the gospel, that the message of the gospel is spread through gifts of God's grace, that the glorious evidence of this blessing is displayed through the church, and we also must understand what I will draw out with this fourth and final question. Do we understand that God designs to bless the nations through sacrificial servants? Do we understand that there is a constant call of dying to self involved here? Do we understand that God designs to bless the nations through sacrificial servants? This section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is bracketed by the reality of the apostles' suffering. In three one, we read, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in verse 13, we read, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul is in jail for preaching the gospel. Yet consider his perspective. Who is he a prisoner of? Not the Romans. What does he say? He's a prisoner of Christ's. One preacher writes, perspective is all important. How we view and react to circumstances is more important than the circumstances themselves. If all we can see is our immediate situation, then our circumstances control us. We feel good when our circumstances are good, but miserable when they are not. Had Paul been able to only see his circumstances, he would have quickly given up his ministry. Had he thought that his life was ultimately in the hands of his persecutors, his jailers, his guards, or the Roman government, he would have long since given up in despair. But Paul's perspective was a divine perspective, and he lived with total trust in God's promises. The same comes through in verse 13. He's comforting He's comforting those that he's writing to so they're not troubled by his imprisonment. How's that for perspective? Why does he endure it? He says it's for their glory. His suffering is for their blessing. Paul understands that God blesses the nations through suffering servants, and he is a most willing one. I read an account this week of a recent demonstration of this in the lives of Martin Burnham and his wife. They were new tribes missionaries killed in the Philistines, I think back in 2004. Before they died, they were prisoners of the Abu Sayyaf terrorist group who held them captive for 376 days. Brian Chapel relays how Martin was often used as a servant to carry the terrorists' supplies in treacherous terrain. But while bearing their loads, he never complained, viewing even his servitude as a calling of God and an opportunity for the gospel. Though the Burnhams were increasingly weak and malnourished when relief agencies managed to get food packages to them, do you know what they did? They shared their food with their captors. Captors. And Martin said to his wife, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. Let's go all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. The evidence of this resolve became apparent even to his captors who would debate about who would chain him up every night. None of them liked to do it because he would thank them. Why would anyone submit to being a prisoner and a servant of others with joy? 
Chapel writes, the answer lies in the fact that over and over in the evenings, Martin would patiently explain the gospel to his Muslim captors. He was living for them and viewed his situation as a calling of God to minister the mysteries of the gospel to these lost souls. When we understand that God designs to bless the nations through the gospel, through gifts of grace, through the church, we will gladly suffer for the sake of Christ and the lost. For some, this will mean prison. For some, this will mean suffering. For some, this will mean death. For some, this will mean dying to a self a thousand times over every day joyfully. Going without the materialism and the comfort and the pleasure our society is dripping with for the sake of Christ and for the blessing of the nations. Church, as we go through this series, as we consider the gospel needs of our region and of our country and of our world, we're going to have to have some serious conversations about going. Whether near or far, and giving, giving money, giving time, giving ourselves for the sake of Christ and for the blessing of the nations. I can feel my heart already being challenged and squeezed and we're just starting. Perhaps yours is also. The needs are great. Waterloo Region has recently been one of the fastest growing regions in our country. In our country. And there are not enough churches currently for the people who already live here. And of the current churches in our country, there's a massive need blooming on the horizon. Pastor Caleb told me the other week about these numbers from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. In 2018, they reported that in 10 years, so six years from now, 50% of pastors will be of retirement age. Of that 50%, 15% were already 65, so now they're 69. If there are not already enough churches, and soon 50% of churches will require pastors, we're facing difficult times. And that's not even touching the spiritual condition of our country. As you've heard me say before, and I say again, at best, 800,000 people sat under the faithful preaching of God's Word today in Canada. 800,000 of over 37 million. And then globally, there are millions and millions who don't even have access to this mystery of God's design to bless the nations through the gospel. So yes, I think it will be fitting for us to have some conversations about sacrifice for the sake of Christ and for the church and for the blessing of the nations. What an opportunity we have. God has placed us here at this time 
And I pray he will grow our understanding that the nations are blessed through the gospel, through gifts of God's grace, through the church, and through sacrifice. And fitting that to sacrifice he calls us, for we are servants of the crucified one who called us to take up our cross and follow after him. Should we not be willing to endure for his glory and the good of others, even a measure of what he suffered for the glory of the Father and for our good, so that the nations could be glad in him as we are? Matthew tells us that they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him and they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They scourged him, lacerating his back with the equivalent of razor blades. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and they knelt before him, and they mocked, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. And they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they threw the beam on his wounds. And then they crucified him. And they divided up his garments among them, which means he was hanging naked. And those who passed by, they shook their heads at him. They derided him. They mocked him. Save yourself if you're the Christ. And he hung there for hours until darkness covered the whole land, until three in the afternoon, and the sun's light failed. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also cried, It is finished. Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That is what is at the center of the canvas. And that, and him, are how the nations can be glad. May these reflections help us as we sing, and as we eat, and as we drink together. In word and deed, let us proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus until he comes. Julia is going to come and lead us with others in the following song, which includes these lyrics. You have called us out of darkness, darkest night into your glorious light, that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. May our every breath retell the grace that broke into our strife with boundless love and deepest joy, with endless life. May the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. All your blessing comes that we may praise, may praise the name of Jesus. Will you stand with us?